0: Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B53 Memento Mori This is how Zenobia died. Aurelian marched toward Europe, carrying with him Zenobia, her son, and the rest of the confederates in this rebellion. Zenobia is said to have died either of disease or want of food, but the rest were all drowned in the strait between Chalcedon and Byzantium. That's Zosimus writing around the year 500. For these events, he apparently relied on another historian named Eunapius, who'd written his own universal history around a century earlier. And if it is an accurate record, our story really ends here. Queen Zenobia had been killed by chance, or, like the legendary Julia Domna, she'd decided to preserve her remaining honor by starving herself to death. But, as is typical for the crisis years, the scanty sources covering the events are bound to disagree. So, let's follow a different narrative that sees Zenobia go on. Returning safely across the Hellespont, Aurelian was immediately re-enrolled in his previous line of work, defending the beleaguered Danube provinces from constant barbarian attack. The tribe of the weak were the Carpiani, from the Carpathian region of modern Romania, and we know very little about the conflict aside from Aurelian's victory. But that's not really important. The important part is the letter that arrived, sometime in early 273, as Aurelian prepared to keep marching toward Rome. Do you guys remember way, way back when Cyrus the Great took Sardis? Being a pretty reasonable guy who liked to minimize his subjects' resentment, Cyrus had entrusted a local figure named Pactias to run the civil administration. Cyrus had hardly left the city before Pactius used access to the local treasury to recruit Lydian and Ionian mercenaries to drive the Persians back out. Enraged that his light touch was mistaken for weakness, Cyrus dispatched his general Mazares to pursue Pactius wherever he fled, which eventually led to the Persian conquest of all of Anatolia. Well, the Palmyrenes hadn't read their Herodotus, because the minute Aurelian left for the west, they started planning a second rebellion. The lead conspirators seemed to have been a disgruntled clique of Palmyrene nobles, who were quickly successful in listing the aid of a body of Palmyrene soldiers. After making their plans and engaging key figures, the revolt began with a bloody purge. As the Historia Augusta reports, they killed Sandarion, whom Aurelian had put in command of the garrison there, and with him 600 bowmen, thus getting the rule for a certain Achelaus, a kinsman of Zenobius. The figure of Achelaus— called Antiochus in Zosimus, is ripe for speculation. An earlier inscription referred to Zenobia as the daughter of Antiochus, which, if you want to take things literally, means the usurper may have been Zenobia's father, although we've already made the case for a few more likely contenders. Zosimus also describes Antiochus as being of mean condition which sounds like some more distant relative dusted off for the current purpose. So, how did Aurelian learn about this? Well, he received an urgent dispatch from his prefect of the east, Marcellinus. After slaughtering the garrison and elevating Achilleus, the Palmyrenes had sent an official named Apsicus to approach Marcellinus in Nisibis. Zosimus describes Apsicus as the principal author of all that was passed, implying some connection with Zenobia's revolt, though it's unclear why, if he had been involved, he hadn't already been executed. Whatever his background, Apsicus was tasked with making the critical pitch. According to Zosimus, he proposed that the prefect Marcellinus. Assumed to himself the imperial robe. Whether they assumed all Romans were corrupt or had some dirt on Marcellinus, the Palmyrenes appeared to be expecting a sympathetic ear. And it is true that at this moment, Aurelian's control of the region was tenuous, and a senior commander with some ambition might reforge a Syrian empire. But unfortunately for Apsicus and the rest of Palmyra, Marcellinus was totally loyal to Aurelian. While he shot the emperor an urgent dispatch, he pretended to be intrigued by the offer and told the Palmyrenes he needed more time before he could make a decision. His ongoing delays gave Aurelian enough time to return all the way from Thrace with his army. And I don't want to undersell that feat because, driven by rage and thoughts of revenge, Aurelian pushed his troops so hard that nobody knew they were even coming until they'd arrived in Antioch, from where, with very little delay, they set out for Palmyra. Back through the desert in the baking sun, with a bitter wind blowing hard against them, making their way toward a group of rebels who'd slaughtered Roman troops. Even if your mug said world's chillest emperor, it'd be hard to maintain your cool composure. And, if I haven't mentioned it before, Aurelian was not the world's chillest emperor. At this point, he had zero interest in trying his luck with some other proxy. They'd squandered their chance for a peaceful solution. All that was left was the sword. The Roman destruction of the city of Palmyra was a fairly brutal affair. According to the Historia Augusta, Aurelian wrote a letter revealing a confession of most savage fury. Which it then goes on to quote. The swords of the soldiers should not proceed further. Already enough Palmyrenes have been killed and slaughtered. We have not spared the women, we have slain the children, we have butchered the old men, we have destroyed the peasants. To whom at this rate shall we leave the land or the city? Those who still remain must be spared. Oddly enough, among the spared was the would-be usurper Achilleus, supposedly due to his mean condition, as well as Septimius Hadudan, who apparently had no involvement. The fate of the Palmyrene official Apsychus was likely a bit less sanguine. So, what about the city? Well, he left the theater mostly intact, and the monumental arch, and the Grand Colonnade, and the city's two most famous temples, those of baal and Bell. But the Historia Augusta also hints that intact didn't mean untouched. Aurelian's letter goes on to mention the Temple of the Sun at Palmyra which has been pillaged by the eagle-bearers of the Third Legion, along with the standard-bearers, the dragon-bearer, and the buglers and trumpeteers. I wish it restored to the condition in which it formerly was. You have three hundred pounds of gold from Zenobia's coffers, you have eighteen hundred pounds of silver from the property of the Palmyrenes, and you have the royal jewels. Use all these to embellish the temple. Now, Palmyra had temples to a number of sun gods, but the temple of the sun he refers to here is likely the temple of Bel. And while Aurelian apparently had the temple restored, the sun-worshipping emperor just couldn't resist making off with its famous centerpiece. As Zosimus reports, sometime later in Rome, Aurelian erected that sumptuous temple of the sun, which he ornamented with the sacred spoils that he brought from Palmyra, placing in it the statues of Sol and Bel. Aside from the parts that Aurelian spared, the rest of the city was heavily damaged. But Unlike the earlier Sassanid conquests of Hatra and Dura-Europos, Palmyra wasn't completely depopulated or abandoned to the desert. Traumatized survivors were allowed to stay and try to eke out some meager living. But without any soldiers to guard the caravans, Palmyra's economy collapsed. It's likely that those who could afford to left, while those who couldn't found work where they could. As a small consolation, a few decades later, the city was made a legionary base. But whatever remained was barely a shadow of its days of imperial glory. While Marcellinus had now coordinate Roman defense of the eastern frontier, there was still a need for local tribesmen to man the forts and patrol the desert. And that, as you may have already guessed, is where the Tanu came in. I recently mentioned how the loyal Tanu could gain land and plunder at Palmyra's expense. This new role was just the logical outcome of the total defeat of their enemies. Wait, did I say total defeat? Because we're actually not quite there yet. The final gasp of Palmyrene resistance came, somewhat surprisingly, from Egypt. As you may recall, Zenobia had ruled as queen of Egypt for just about two years, and during that time she'd labored to integrate Egyptian and Palmyrene trade. Even though the provincial governor made a deal to support Aurelian, there were some Egyptians still loyal to Zenobia, or at least who still favored her policies. At the same time as Palmyrene nobles were sending Apsicus to intrigue in Nisibis. A wealthy trader by the name of Firmus launched an Egyptian rebellion. Firmus is described in the Historia Augusta as a friend and ally of Zenobius, who seized the imperial power with the purpose of defending the remainder of Zenobius' party. Not much is offered to flesh this out, and it's unknown whether Zenobia's party means Egyptians sympathetic to Palmyra, or Palmyrene traders living in Egypt, or even Palmyrenes who'd fled their city after the battles of Emma and Emesa. It's also almost entirely unclear what kind of defense they needed. But... Either way, if you're trying to protect Palmyrene holdouts, there are likely infinitely better ways than launching a major revolt. It's hard to say what prompted Firmus to take such a bold and dangerous step. He even prevented the Roman grain ships from setting sail for Italy. Whatever he was actually trying to accomplish was basically doomed the moment it started— especially since Aurelian was already in Syria at the head of a huge Roman army. In fairness to Firmus, he may not have known. The freakish speed of the emperor's return had apparently caught everyone off guard. Likely descending via the same route used for Zenobia's recent invasion, Aurelian's forces soon arrived at the provincial capital of Alexandria. Alexandria. And then, well, what do you think? According to the Historia Augusta, Aurelian summarized the outcome as follows. Firmus, that brigand in Egypt, who rose in revolt with barbarians and gathered together with the remaining adherents of a shameless woman, we have routed and seized and tortured and slain. And that was basically the end of that. With Alexandria retaken, Palmyra destroyed, and a treaty in place with the Persian king, the east was looking sufficiently secure for Aurelian to head back west. Meanwhile, in Richard Stoneman's words, Zenobia, dragging from camp to camp in her golden chains, waited for her first sight of Rome— Assuming she'd continued west while Aurelian had headed back to Palmyra, Zenobia likely arrived in the capital in the spring of 273. From a later description of Aurelian's triumph, we can collate a list of her traveling companions. Arabs, Indians, Bactrians, Iberians, Saracens, and Persians—all meant for imperial display— There were also a few Palmyrene officials, those who'd managed to avoid execution, and, one can only assume, the magical disappearing boy, Vabalathus, whose power to vanish from historical narratives had only grown stronger with age. It's likely that the Rome they saw had a massive billboard saying, Under Construction, since work had only recently begun on the massive new circuit of walls. Other than that, for someone who'd spent time in Antioch and was at least familiar with Alexandria, it's unlikely there was much in the capital beyond Zenobia's experience. One thing absent from the ancient sources is where she spent the whole next year— In some insanely well-guarded villa, or the miserable pit of a Roman dungeon. In either event, it's pretty likely she got little news from the outside world. And it may have only been much later on that she learned of the conquest of Tetricus. Aurelian had returned to Rome in the second half of 273, and spent the winter making plans to reclaim the Gallic Empire. The brazen insult to imperial unity already endured for thirteen years, first under the able Licinius Postumus, then under a string of less able successors. Interestingly enough, among the mix was a female Augusta by the name of Victoria, who bore the title Mother of the Camp and minted imperial coins. So, seriously, guys, this whole Zenobia thing is really getting out of hand. Victoria had chosen the current ruler, Gaius Pius Asuvius Tetricus, who'd also elevated his son as the would-be Tetricus II. Aurelian decided to solve the problem by once again playing against type. And instead of launching a scorched earth campaign, he resorted to back channel diplomacy. The fruits of the effort were apparently a deal to return the Gallic Empire to Rome in exchange for a little special treatment for Tetricus and his son. Basically, Aurelian launched an invasion, and soon after meeting the Gallic army, the Gallic emperor defected to Aurelian and left his own troops to be slaughtered. And really, that was the final step. The whole Roman world from Britannia to Syria, was once again ruled by a single emperor. So, in case it was any consolation, Zenobia wasn't alone. Aurelian had consistently outwitted and outclassed pretty much everyone he'd ever gone up against. And now that he'd accomplished the virtually impossible, it was time to trumpet the news— According to historian Pat Southern, the titles stamped on imperial coins included Victoriosimus, the Most Victorious, Gloriusissimus, the Most Glorious, and Fortissimus, the Most Strong, along with the better-known Restitutor Orbis, quite simply the Restorer of the World. As historian Pat Southern notes, The ultimate accolade was the elevation of Aurelian from a mere mortal to a divine being, declared in his titles Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. In keeping with his newfound status, Aurelian started to wear a diadem and cloth of gold, and demanded that his subjects bow down before him. He had probably learned from the customs of Easterners, and in particular, the Persians. Sometime in the autumn of 274 came the ultimate expression of victory. As recorded in the Historia Augusta, Aurelian, now ruler over the entire world, having subdued both the East and the Gauls, and victor in all lands, turned his march toward Rome that he might present to the gaze of the Romans a triumph over both Zenobia and Tetricus, that is, over both the east and the west. The Historia goes on to describe the triumph in pretty generous detail. Among the highlights were four royal chariots, one that had belonged to Odinathus, the second given to Aurelian by the Persians, a third belonging to Queen Zenobia, and a fourth drawn by four stags that had belonged to the king of the Goths. This is likely a reference to Canabaudes, the Gothic leader Aurelian had killed just prior to abandoning Dacia. It was in the fourth chariot that Aurelian rode up to the capital Purposing there to slay the stags to Jupiter best and greatest. Given his status of lord and god, he may have dispensed with the ancient tradition of having a slave stand just behind him and whisper, You are mortal. The Historia continues that there advanced, moreover, twenty elephants and two hundred tamed beasts, also eight hundred pairs of gladiators besides the captives of the barbarian tribes. Then, finally, we come to the centerpiece. In the procession was Tetricus also, arrayed in a scarlet cloak, a yellow tunic, and Gallic trousers, and with him his son, whom he had proclaimed in Gaul as emperor. And there came Zenobia too, decked with jewels and in golden chains, the weight of which was borne by others. Courageous though she was, she halted very frequently, saying that she could not endure the load of her gems. Furthermore, her feet were bound with shackles of gold and her hands with golden fetters, and even on her neck she wore a chain of gold. It's the last known event of her public life, and at least we have a physical description, but I'm sure, like me, you'd like to have something more. Was she defiant, or was she broken, or just resigned to her fate? Did she wish she'd made Cleopatra's choice, or consider the words of the prophet Manny, that every person shall follow after his deeds? whether to light or, indeed, to death. With so much knowledge lost to history, we're forced to rely on what little we have, and the sources note she endured the triumph with courage. The description provided in the Historia Augusta has one pretty glaring omission. How do you mention Tetricus's son and somehow not mention Vabalathus? Well, provided he was still alive, I can only picture one possible reason. Vobolathus was Zenobia's son, but he was also Odonathus's son. And Odonathus was still widely revered for his copious service to Rome. So putting Vobolathus in a triumph in chains risked sending out some pretty mixed messages. And diluting the purely victorious image, the emperor wanted to project. According to chronicler John Malalas, this is how Zenobia died. After parading her in his triumph in Rome in the old manner, Aurelian beheaded her. Malalas was an Antiochene jurist writing around the mid-sixth century A.D and he apparently pulled from numerous sources to string together his chronicle. He's also the guy who relayed the account of Zenobia's public humiliation in Antioch. So again, it's obnoxious to credit some facts while choosing to disregard others. But there are some pretty credible reasons why this version of her death is unlikely— First is the fate of her co triumph e, the former Gallic emperor Tetricus. Not only was his life preserved, but Aurelian actually gave him the post of regional governor of Lucania, and also admitted his son to the Roman Senate. And sure, you can argue that Tetricus cut a deal while Queen Zenobia continued to fight. But still, the optics'd be pretty weird if he only beheaded Zenobia. In fact, Aurelian found himself on the defensive for even including Zenobia in a triumph. According to the Historia Augusta, some found fault with him because he, the bravest of men, had led a woman in triumph, as though she were a general he ended up being forced to respond to charges that he was acting unmanly. One can only assume that having Zenobia executed wouldn't exactly mitigate the problem. Fortunately, we don't just need to rely on logic to argue for Zenobia's survival. We actually have a number of sources that carry your story onward. According to the Historia Augusta, Zenobia's life was granted her by Aurelian, and they say that thereafter she lived with her children in the manner of a Roman matron, on an estate that had been presented to her at Tiber, which even to this day is called Zenobia, not far from the palace of Hadrian. Even if this ending has a storybook feel, that doesn't have to make it untrue— She was no longer any kind of threat, and Aurelian had bigger fish to fry. There's worse PR than being gracious to a captive, vanquished foe. Historian Pat Southern helpfully summarizes the rest of the ancient sources. Zonaris indicates that Zenobia had more than two daughters. One of them was supposed to have married Aurelian, which is pure fantasy— and the others married noble Romans. Sincelis says that Zenobia herself was married to a Roman senator. Libanius, writing in the late 4th century, mentions a descendant of Odonathus who was still living in Italy. And both Eutropius and Jerome, also writing at about that time, claim Zenobia's descendants were still living in Rome. So, Provided the stories are true, Rome conquered Zenobia in much the same way it had conquered the Mediterranean—first by inflicting a battlefield loss, and later by slow integration. But granting Zenobia an idyllic retirement doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. The next few decades saw seismic changes—in Rome, Persia, and even beyond events that provided a dramatic backdrop for the rest of Zenobia's life. In the final episode, we'll pull those strings, and the really monumental challenge, try to bring the series to some kind of closure.